Please rise. Court is now in session. Justice Facts dissects the most notorious criminal cases making news today. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here with decorated former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. We have been up close and personal with serial killers, mass murderers, sexual predators, and terrorists. You name it, and we've seen it. From the crime scene, to the courtroom, to prison, even the death chamber. We take you behind the scenes into the dark drama surrounding these cases from a perspective that you would never experience on your own. Please be advised that some editions may contain graphic descriptions of violent crime. Here's our latest edition of Justice Facts. Breaking news today on Justice Facts, current events in true crime. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here with former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. In an earlier episode, Bill broke down the indictment of Jeffrey Epstein's alleged accomplice in sex trafficking, Ghislaine Maxwell. And we discussed how negotiations might proceed in getting Maxwell to divulge the names of high-profile men allegedly involved in the abuse of underage girls. At the time of this episode, on Thursday, October 22, 2020, a judge ordered the release of previously sealed 465-page deposition of Maxwell, and it's a blockbuster. Ghislaine Maxwell evades, dodges, suffers memory failure, denies, and at one point loses her temper by pounding on the table during two days of questioning about her alleged role in sex trafficking with underage girls for Jeffrey Epstein. The 58-year-old Maxwell became the focus of a federal investigation into Epstein's sex trafficking network after he committed suicide in his jail cell while awaiting trial last year. When Maxwell was arrested in July of this year, federal prosecutors said that from 1994 to 1997, she contributed to the abuse of multiple teenage girls by Epstein, one as young as 14, and participated in sexual acts with them and Epstein. The four-year-old deposition stems from a civil lawsuit filed by Virginia Jufrey. She had accused Maxwell in a defamation lawsuit of recruiting her as a teenager to become a victim of Epstein's sex trafficking scheme. Maxwell denied allegations that she solicited the then-teenager at Margo Alago, President Trump's private club in Palm Beach, Florida, where Epstein kept one of his many mansions and estates. The often heated day-long and two-day-long questioning centered on whether Maxwell helped Epstein recruit, groom, and sexually abuse dozens of teenage girls. Confronted with Epstein's previous conviction for sex trafficking and statements by 30 underage victims in police reports, Maxwell stubbornly refused to say if she believed Epstein had abused any minors. At one point, Maxwell ducked that question 10 times in a row. The names of high-profile men in the case are redacted, which means they were blacked out. It's clear that Maxwell denies introducing Prince Andrew to underage sex partners and repeatedly calls the accuser an absolute liar. But 
Maxwell dodges questions about the origin of the infamous photograph taken of Prince Andrew with his arm around the accuser, who was underage at the time, and with Ghislaine smiling in the background. And now Bill Johnson joins me. And Bill, why now in a civil case do you think the judge unseals this? And of course, the accuser's um, lawyers, they wanted this to happen. And Maxwell's lawyers had fought this for four years. Ordinarily, in a civil case, depositions are something that the parties know about, but normally they don't get out in the public domain. So my thought or sort of guess on this is that the motion filed by the victims was persuasive enough that not only it would be beneficial to her, and she has a right as a party, obviously, to have it uh, released and made public, but also they may have appealed to the judge's sense of the public good because it's within the judge's discretion to decide whether or not something that's ordinarily kept within the closed walls of a civil case, you know, might play a role in something that the public has a right to know about. So my guess is uh, both her claim and possibly a public good claim came in and the judge said, yep, let's let it out. Well, so the, the deposition does shed a little more light into the allegations. Uh, uh, Maxwell says that she began working for Epstein in 1992. Now, to hear her tell the story, she's a property manager and that sort of stuff for him. Can't really recall, though, what he was paying her. Says maybe between a hundred and two hundred thousand a year, but really, really can't recollect that. Um, the first question out of the box in the deposition was, uh, when did you first recruit a female to work for Mr. Epstein? And did you ever bring someone who was or invited under the age of 18 to Jeffrey's home or any of his homes? And boy, it just stalls right there. I mean, she even at one point goes, well, I don't, what, what do you mean by female? What's, what's female? And he's like, well, you're a female. But all the way through, I mean, page after page, right out of the bat, she's dodging that question. So why did she give the deposition to begin with, I wonder? In other words, in a civil matter, just like a criminal matter, you can plead the fifth. Now, it looks bad in a civil case to do that, but a, and a plaintiff can't do that or they can't pursue their case. In other words, you can't sue someone and then plead the fifth yourself, but a defendant in a civil case can plead the fifth. And I guess this was um, maybe an, partly an image issue for her, money too, but certainly an image issue, which is, if she had pled the fifth to questions like that, the presumption on everybody's part would be, wow, she's got something really big, yeah. and she's worried herself. But her lawyers made a decision to let her, mm -hmm. although they say it's her decision, I'm sure the lawyers told her, hey, if you want to give a deposition, that's fine. But it's shocking to me she gave a deposition. So, you know, the, uh, the allegations center on that she was recruiting and grooming underage girls God, you know, reading this by the hundreds, uh, to give massages to Epstein and uh, in which there would be sexual acts committed, that she even trained them. Now, she admits in it that he would get a massage daily, but she wasn't involved, and it was a professional masseuse. Sure. Um, the, and, and then the, the accuser, the underage victim, she says, oh, she held herself out to be a masseuse, and the first time she met with him, her mother drove him to the mansion in Palm Beach, uh, and she, she invited herself to come over. Uh, 
for a massage, and then she denies that she participated in any massage with her and Epstein. Um, and then she denies ever giving any massage to Epstein in the presence of any underage 18, and says so she never even saw it. Um, and then there is a there's a message in there that's been passed along where Epstein told some of the girls that, that brought girls in that, hey, the younger, the better. How do you see this? And this is, a, this is repeated over and over in this deposition. This is going to give us a look at what's going to be in the criminal case and before a jury. I think the U.S. attorneys did a really great job in the indictment against her laying out how this started and what the purpose of these acts were. The, the way a sexual predator, and that's really all they are, uh, as alleged sexual predators, um, they rarely... Uh, on the, in this type of situation, rarely just go out and do something bold and brash. The process of grooming, that is getting this victim comfortable and getting them to lay aside their inhibitions uh, and their awkwardness, <clears throat> that, that usually starts just like this, where someone is, as the indictment said, uh, personally... Uh, Oh, what's a good way to put it? They're, they are brought into uh, the fold of this, uh, of Maxwell and Epstein, by being cared for and being, is almost like they were a daughter. Or yeah, they, they win were their a trust. Niece. Oh, and they're, they let their guard down. Gain their trust, but they do it by including them in fun things and also talking about how is school? How, how, what about this teacher? And the more they can, particularly a female like, Elaine Maxwell can engage them, they just start to drop their guard. And that this whole thing, this deposition, even unanswered, because you can tell by the way the questions where they're headed, it's just a process of early grooming. And she realizes in the when these questions are asked, she realizes she better go so far and no farther. Because if she does, she's acknowledging these grooming acts. So she stops short of it and blame, sort of blames the victims. Oh, they wanted to come over. Sure, they were just helping. They want, no, they wanted to. They, their mother brought them. That's her story throughout it. I, I thought this was interesting. And here's, here's an exact question. Did any of the massage therapists who were working at the home perform sexual acts for Jeffrey Epstein? Her answer, I don't know what you mean by sexual acts. Well, that's... that. That's reminiscent <laughs> from uh, a public figure years and years ago. Who, Who's named to this? President Clinton. <laughs> yeah, who yeah. wanted to know what you know? Who wanted to subdefine sex? Uh, so, yeah. And then here's another. There's two pages fully redacted, completely blacked out, and it's a discussion and questions to her about did she have a laundry basket full of sex toys? But it's all. Blacked out. And then at the end of it, she comes back and says of the accuser, her story is one giant tissue of lies. There you go. And victim blaming in front of a jury is um, ill-advised. Uh, were she to go to trial on this and take the stand and testify like this, in my experience, it won't go over very well because um, a jury is immediately open and sympathetic to a young victim or someone that was young. You can look at the Bill Cosby case. You know, many of those women were yes. had aged quite a bit. Yeah. And, and they have in this case. Right. And, but the jury still pictured them if they're doing their job. They sort of picture them in that earlier time. So 
Well, of course, in a criminal case, she doesn't have to take the stand. But in this civil case we're talking about here, she would. And can you imagine a jury's reaction when she says, I don't know what you mean by sexual acts? It's just so unreasonable. Uh, There's another interesting thing in here that kind of goes back to her relationship with, uh, with Maxwell. They asked, did you ever consider yourself his girlfriend? And her answer, well, that's a tricky question. There were times when I would have liked to think of myself as his girlfriend. And, well, when would that have been? Oh, probably in the early 90s. Well, have you ever said to anybody that, and, and, and then they picked this back up here, that you recruit other females over the, over the age of 18 to take pleasure off of you having to have sex with Jeffrey? She says, I totally resent and find it disgusting that the, you use the word recruit. I already told you I don't know what you are saying about that, and your implication is repulsive. How about the word recruit, her bow, you know, bowing up against that? Again, she, she probably shouldn't have given this deposition because she's responding to, she's flinching at wor- hot-button words that are a part of the question to her. And that tells you all you need to know when she responds and and jumps back at certain of these terms. She realizes the significance of them and she just can't go there. Well, you know, there is this famous photograph taken of her. And I mentioned in the intro and Prince Andrew with his arm around the underage girl. And he comes out of here. It was taken in uh, Maxwell's London townhome. But, you know, she thinks maybe that background looks like my townhome. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, and, and, and that I don't know who took that picture. Oh, I can't remember who took that picture. Um, and then goes on to recount uh, saying that Prince Andrew visited many of his estates and homes. That, and, and there is an allegation that she even got a schoolgirl outfit for the for the alleged victim for the prince to wear. Uh, not the prince to wear, to wear for the prince. Hmm. Uh-huh. Part of this, when one just looks at this at a bit of a distance, uh, you're almost, the thought almost crosses your mind. When someone has so much money and so much, uh, such a substantial position, whether it's royalty, whether it's a billionaire, are they so bored with life are they so unsatisfied with life that that they have to have fun in every quarter including the area of underage girls and you know there are the people that often fly to the far east in areas where young girls uh, are used as sex toys in effect um, it's often very wealthy people and it's almost as if uh, they deserve be their position or their status or their money, they deserve to have whatever sort of fun they can come up with and they can afford. And that sounds like what this is. They get into the um, aircraft logs of his private jet. He, and she indicates he owned two at one time, but reputedly one of them was, was dubbed the um, Lolita, which really raises questions right there. But, you know, they talk about the flight logs, and in the flight logs, there are, are initials used for each passenger. There's a JE, obviously Jeffrey Epstein. There's a GM, supposedly Glenn Maxwell. Virginia, the name of the first name of the victim, is in there. But Maxwell disputes. Well, I I don't know GM. I don't know if that's for me or not. You know, I don't. You know, I don't know if I shouldn't know if she was on any of these flights. And and you know, is just 
dodging of the being on the flights. Now, Clinton, President Clinton has mentioned about being on the flights and that he's a friend of Jeffrey's, and then things are redacted and taken out. Um, you do see, I mean, we're talking at least 300 flights of 1999 to 2005. Uh, they're going to islands. Interestingly, there's a bunch of questions, and there's some other mail he's redacted out of going to Thailand, which we know has got the center of the perverted universe of taking advantage and sexual abuse of underage That's boys right. and girls. That's right. Thailand's a hot spot for yeah. Uh But she can't recall why they went there. Again, why did she give the deposition just to give dumb answers like that? Some of the answers she gave are so unreasonable. And for the most part, that's what she did. She gave ridiculous answers. She didn't remember. She made the mistake, though, in this of giving enough specific answers that the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York used them for specific perjury counts against her. So these were brought to life when they they went through this deposition and tried to find not these ridiculous answers because they just are what they are, but to try to find a few places where she was specific enough that they could say that's a provable lie. And they did that on at least two little short lines of questioning from the deposition. And so now she's actually charged criminally with part of this deposition. Again, I just think, you know, why did she give it? sound ridiculous, look ridiculous, blame the victim, and lie. But she did. They lead her through a bunch of phone call messages that were taken, and there's a computer there that, you know, has Maxwell's data and emails and that sort of stuff. But she said, that's a house computer. That's not my computer. And there were nudes of women on there. And, well, she claims that, well, I I, I might have taken some photos of topless um age-appropriate women, or poolside. But I take thousands of photos, and mainly my preference for photos is landscapes and architecture. I take thousands. That's her explanation for the stuff. But what becomes interesting, some of the messages, here's one that kind of grabbed my attention in, in 2004. There's a, um, there's a male, they've redacted his name, who's called, and it says, for Epstein, I have a female for him. Uh, that is a minor, and um, the uh, they ask you know why why would a minor be be calling you know do you know do you know why that's happening and she says uh, well first of all I don't know that it's a minor I don't even know who took the message you know it kind of looks like it's her handwriting then there's another one it says this is really gets to the heart of what's going on it says quote uh, some again some male procurer apparently or friend of Epstein says he has a teacher for you to teach you how to speak Russian she is two times eight years old not blonde lessons are free and you can have your first today if you call then they say do you know whether you sent a Russian girl to him that was 16 years old over to his home uh, then there's a big objection and she's like oh I don't know I don't know but the Apparently, uh, there's all kinds of incriminating stuff like messages that she runs from. What a great job, you know, the victim's lawyer did here. It's an example of using a civil proceeding, which we do sometimes. In fact, you and I have talked in our other, uh, our other podcasts about a case where I sued a murderer 
before he was charged to try to learn things to hand it over to authorities. And what a great job. Again, the civil lawyer here was pursuing a civil case for his client, and that's you know, proper. And he was trying to, I'm sure, get money for her and, and get her story told. But at the same time, he was laying the groundwork for a prosecution by digging into things that the that it's unlikely she would ever tell investigators. She would probably not testify or give a statement to a grand jury. She'd plead the fifth probably. But this is just slightly less threatening, the civil suit. And so sometimes people will expose themselves, and she did here big time, expose themselves to liability for criminal acts in a civil matter. But what a great job the lawyer did. So as you know earlier, Epstein pled guilty to sex trafficking charges and ended up with a slap on the wrist over it. Uh, so they present her with police reports and that and that he's convicted and all. And this question is asked of her exact question over and over. So knowing that, do you believe that Jeffrey Epstein sexually abused minors? She runs from it and runs and never answers. You know, I don't understand the question, but it is the most evasive dodging ever say I mean well and again she uh, there are many questions she could dodge because she could try to ask for a better interpretation of a word which is ridiculous but but something like you just mentioned where the guy's been convicted of it there's no question it's it's like saying is the sun up and look up there it is and because because that was so obvious her response to that uh, sort of paints the whole thing as ridiculous. It makes her, when you're ridiculous and unreasonable to one or two questions that are kind of obvious, it really uh, destroys your credibility for the rest of the questions, if you ask me. Well, here's something that goes to kind of her blind loyalty because they establish he's been to jail. We know he's pled guilty. And so they ask her, you know, why are you having contact, any more contact with him? You know, at one point she denied contact. And she says, I'm a very loyal person, and Jeffrey was good to me when my father passed away, and I believe that you need to be a good friend in people's hour of need. And I felt that it was a very thoughtful, nice thing for me to do to help in a very limited fashion, which was helping if he had any issue with his homes in terms of staffing issues. It was very, very minor, but I felt it was thoughtful in somebody's hour of need. Well, how much did you get paid for that? Well, I can't remember how much I get paid. And they go through this. Well, was it less than more than four five hundred thousand dollars? Less than five hundred thousand dollars? And she's just all over the place. But that says something about the loyalty. And she has a really bad answer for everything here. Again, you know, she minimizes in, instead of just saying the way it was uh, regarding whether she was a girlfriend or what sort of friend she was, or just she made money. She could have said, "Hey, listen." I made money from a guy, and I needed to do this. Instead, she has to somehow make him a human, personalize him. Oh, a, a time of need for her. He was nice. So she just, her answers are, uh, of course, less than believable, but also just offensive, frankly. So here's one that knocked me over. And I don't think, maybe I missed it. I don't think I'd heard this before, but they, they obviously have got something because they asked, did you or Jeffrey Epstein ask any of these underage females to become pregnant and carry his baby uh, for either him or you? And she's like, well, I don't know what you mean by carry. And they, and they have to explain to her pregnant, you know, to get pregnant. 
Yeah, she again the ob most obvious term of the English language she doesn't understand. Uh, when it comes to the deposition, she's needs a, a Webster's dictionary to help her with and and the and but. There is another uh, allegation emerges in here of Epstein b in being involved in underage orgies, possibly with other men that coming with the underage girls, and there's email exchange with him and. Uh, Galane, this is uh, this is recent time uh, about how to try to knock that down, and so um, in, um, it's an email with it's her email address on it from him, and he says you can issue a reward to any of Virginia's friends, that's the accuser, acquaintances, family that come forward to help prove her allegations are false. And the, the one big thing they're worried about is this underage orgy at the Virgin Islands. But how about that, re, calling it a reward? It sounds like a bribe. Well, they call that suborning perjury, of course. And it's, it seems like uh, this witness, Ms. Maxwell here, did everything she could to paint a nice picture here, which is a picture as ugly as it gets, and... It, that little glimpse you just read shows that uh, he was brash and bold about this whole thing, but at the point where he thinks he has any uh, trouble here, he'll immediately go to the the act of suborning perjury, trying to get someone to take money. You know, money's the answer to everything for him. Take money and shut up, or take money and call her a liar. Well, and you heard the other thing about... Uh... German lessons, you know, there was they were covering what was really going on there. But it gets more overt. And there's one exchange in here where uh, the allegation is is that one of his male friends is giving him two 12-year-old girls as a birthday present. And there are other issues of giving underage girls as birthday as presents, offerings. These a pedophile like this. <clears throat> They see underage kids as stock to trade. Uh, and they don't, I think one of the ways they even, if they have a conscience, and probably don't, but if they have much of a conscience at all, maybe the way they live with themselves each day is dehumanizing uh, these kids. And if you see them as a chattel, as a toy, as a thing, as a gift, You've, you've removed the humanity from them just a little bit so you can justify what you're doing with them. And it seems to me uh, that throughout this deal, he and, and her, as alleged in the indictment particularly, where it sets forth her grooming role, they just uh, they saw them as things, not people, not little girls. They were things. So do this, with this release and these sordid details, does this put pressure on the prosecutors to really forge ahead on this and for a conviction or a deal or what happens? You've been a prosecutor. Is the, what is the publicity? Does the publicity put some pressure on you? I think I think not on the prosecutor. I think yeah. the prosecutor has known this. They've already read this. They know all about sure. this. And, the, and their indictment is quite well written where it describes not all of this by any means, but it describes enough of the background. You get the picture. I think this hurts her uh, and get her credibility uh, if she thought maybe she would take the stand in her case or present others. It all looks 
undermined here in this to me. And I, as we talked before about this case, um, any reasonable lawyer representing her would at some point call the U.S. attorney and say, what do you want? What do you need? Because this deposition is not pretty for her. It's, it's not that she admitted some series of crimes. It's that she appears to have victim blamed, which is, again, a bad idea. Right. And it appears she has had trouble with the simplest question, which makes her look ridiculous and trite and, and uh, well, unbelievable. Well, this is worldwide headlines, especially with the high-profile names in it. Um, she's certainly abound, abound to, if any reasonable would see, person would see that I'm dead in front of a jury. This, this stuff is laid out in front of a jury. And could this, this deposition could, sections of this deposition could be presented oh, to yes. the criminal jury. Absolutely. And I think you're, you're right. She, in the deposition, she appears to be somewhat confident that this is not her problem. So she just sort of, sort of deflect these questions. Um, it, it should be her lawyer's job to brace her with this, to say, I want, I'm going to give you a copy of this. You remember we had this deposition. Read it again. Read it tonight. Read every word of it. And tell me if you think you sounded real because you didn't. Mm-hmm. And that's the way, that's the sort of tone U.S. attorneys are going to try to set for you. What do we do now, Ms. Maxwell? What do you want to do now? Because, yes, this looks bad, and you have set the tone here uh, not in a good way. Well, talking of tone, a jury will not just read these words on paper. This deposition was videotaped. They'll show it. If she's in a criminal trial, of course, she doesn't have to take the stand in her own defense. But she will, in, in effect, take the stand with this, and it's ugly. You and I did a story uh, last week about a Baptist preacher that murdered his wife and faked it as a suicide. And for whatever reason, he let me take his deposition. And in that deposition, I asked specific questions to let him pin himself down about the time frame of the murder. Yeah. He did. And we videoed it. And that video deposition was played for the, he didn't testify, but was played for the jury at his criminal trial. And it just killed him. Because, again, he sounded like this. He had an answer for everything, but it wasn't a good answer. And what he did do, he pinned himself in a corner and the science proved he was just wrong. So, yeah, this could be heard by a jury. I think, again, we don't know what's going to happen in the case. We don't know what everyone's thinking. I think a fuse has been lit here that might hit something pretty explosive soon. So do you think... With this blow, does the prosecutor reach out, or does he just sit and wait? Do they just sit and wait? They know what they've got. They don't need to. They don't need to pick up their phone. Uh, and, and I think they're quite confident of their case. They've yeah. obviously interviewed they and their victim witness coordinator, who helps with victims like this. They have interviewed and and gotten to know these victims. They're confident. Uh, like most U.S. attorneys, you. In the federal system, you normally don't indict unless you're ready for trial. You don't indict and hope you get evidence. They're ready, I would bet. And so, yeah, they'll they'll wait and see if they get a call. Well, I would presume that her criminal defense attorney, he's already read all of this way back. Yes. But what's different now, you can see the public reaction around the world to it. Right, right. It's going to be tough here on out to keep your head down. 
I, I would think they would respond uh, to try to get some help here, but we'll see. So what do you think that conversation is like? The conversation. With him and, his, and her. Right. It's usually, uh, it depends on the relationship, but it's usually nice until they can't get a reasonable response. If they can't get the person to come to grips with it, they it's it's often that the lawyer says, I can't help you anymore. I can't help you if you won't tell me the truth. I can't help you if you won't deal with this. If you won't be real here, it's going to be awfully tough. How do you think a jury's going to look at this, ma'am? And you just hope you shake them enough to where they do the right thing and help themselves because they ultimately they're the ones that decide. They're the ones that know what happened. They're the no, ones that know the real truth. Let them decide. Interestingly, a prison investigator we both know who's a specialist, expert in deaths in, in, while in custody, believes that same sort of thing happened with Epstein that his lawyers came in and said, you're, you're basically, t- you're done. And he decided that I, I, can't, I can't do it. I can't go to prison. And the, but the, you know, the lawyer's job is not to tap dance around an issue, right. particularly in something this serious. You, you have to tell them the way it looks. And yeah. based on your experience, what's probably going to happen? No one can predict it, but what's probably going to happen. And unlike him, she may have a, a way out of this. Well, it's obvious, in certainly in the deposition, she's got a big ep, uh, ego, has been a socialite in Great Britain and all. Big opinion probably a little narcissistic. Um, You wonder, will she choose the deal? Do you think they have her under a suicide watch all the time? She is in solitary confinement. No matter what someone is or thinks they are, everybody's got a breaking point. Everyone has a point at which they can't proceed. Uh, I've seen that from every angle myself. You You have to come to grips with the reality of the situation and... I don't care who she is, what she's seen, whose court she's been in, whose plane she's been on. She's a human being that knows what happened. She knows better than anybody, better than the prosecutors. She's the one that knows what happened. She knows what people saw and heard. And if you can get through, whether it's a veneer or a blockade of ego, to get down in there with the person where they deal with it just like every other human would, whether it's a prince or a pauper. Uh, If you can get there with her, you can get a good result. Decent result anyway. Okay, stay tuned to Justice Facts. We're going to be watching for that breaking point. I want to encourage our listeners, too, to go over to and subscribe to the True Crime Reporter podcast. In it, Bill is one of the featured uh, characters, players, in bringing the most notorious serial killer in Texas history to justice. And you can hear a fascinating account from him about the manhunt, the uh, look into the eyes and multiple times of the serial killer, what was he like, plus then his prosecution of a corrupt parole official. So Justice Facts and True Crime Reporter, subscribe, listen. We appreciate any reviews. We'll be back next week with another episode. Justice Facts is co-hosted by Robert Riggs and Bill Johnston. Associate producer, Siler Burr. Original music by Blair King. Social media producer, Grace Woodward. Publicity, Tim Livingston, PR. Graphics, Brian David Kerr Designs. Additional music by Stan Woodward. 
Justice Facts is a copyrighted production produced by True Crime Reporter.